Hello, my name is Ross Ward and you're listening to Red Flag Radio, the podcast of Red Flag newspaper here in Australia. We're recording the show on Indigenous land, land that was stolen, that was never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. So Red Flag Radio is a revolutionary socialist podcast, not to be confused with the Russian Red Flag (laughs) podcast, apparently somebody just told me about recently. Uh, We're uh, actually socialists and um, revolutionaries at that. And we talk about politics, history, theory, and activism with people who are kind of involved in the struggle um, locally and internationally. And if you enjoy the show, we'd love you to spread the word um, and help us get some more listeners. So one thing I wanted to just talk about before we get on to the main topic of today's show is um, the music for this show. We've had some inquiries about mm-hmm. uh, who is featured on the music. What is Who's the mystery voice? We could do a prize actually for this, but maybe... Um, maybe we'll just tell you. Uh, so the music was composed and put together by Dan Kenny, and it includes a clip from a speech given by Leon Trotsky, a Russian revolutionary um, who you might be familiar with, who was recorded in Mexico in 1938 to be played at a mass meeting in New York. And the voice is Trotsky's, and he's saying, Dear comrades and friends, I hope this time my voice will reach you. That's the clip you can hear in the beginning. And then he goes on to say, and that's it's not in our um, recording here, but it's a beautiful um, speech. And he says, Our aim is the full material and spiritual liberation of the toilers and exploited through the socialist revolution. Mm. Nobody will prepare it and nobody will guide it but ourselves. And words that I think are still very relevant mm. today when we look at the Um, struggles going on Mm. and the opera singer um, is the opera singer Eileen Yavita Romero in Chile uh, who is singing a song defying the silence curfew that's part of the martial law that Piñera the president of Chile is trying to impose against the protesters at the moment so there's this beautiful YouTube uh, clip of her if people haven't seen it singing to break the curfewed silence and at the end of her singing, you have this massive round of applause coming from all of these apartment buildings um, all around, just like, um, it's quite spine tingling. Mm. So the person you can hear, Mink, is uh, <laughs> Liam Ward, who's the producer of the show uh, here in um, this special studio that he's also produced for the show, uh, who's a socialist activist and filmmaker. And our special guest today is um, Christy Pasquale, who's a socialist activist based in Melbourne, um, who's a French speaker. He's a master's student in French translation who follows events in France very closely and has lived in France um, previously. And so he's here to talk about um, the current quite incredible situation in France. Welcome, Chris. Thank you for having me. And hello, Liam. Hi. Uh, so let's begin. We're recording this, I should say, on the morning of Friday the 20th of December here in Melbourne. So the situation may have changed by the time you listen to this, hopefully in good ways, but you never know. So we're looking at um, a pretty substantial uprising in France that goes along, I guess, with the theme of global struggles that's been one of the best things about, or probably the best thing about 2019. Um, And a general strike, in fact, a sort of 
kind of ongoing general strike in some respects. Yeah. Can you describe a bit of kind of what's been happening? Yeah. So this was this. These strikes are against um, a reform package uh, to the pension system. Um, being trying to, it, it was one of um, the president uh, Emmanuel Macron's uh, election promises. He promised to turn it into a um, quote unquote a universal system, um, and to end uh, kind of there's a there's a various um, you know range of different uh, pension systems uh, depending on what sector you work in, uh, and so on. And so uh, this was a promise that he came into the election with. And what's happening now since December fifth, there was a big mobilization. Um, depending on who you listen to, but it was over a million people um, uh, across the country, um, hundreds of thousands, 250,000 in Paris marched, um, mostly led by the rail workers. Um, so, but also it's uh, teachers have played a really big role. Schools across the country have shut down. And there's been um, a series of, mo- there was another mobilization on the 10th. There was one just this week on the, what day, the 17th. Um, and they're now um, looking forward to January the 9th. And so, in the meantime, though, there are, uh, there's going to be, yeah, there's de- definitely going to be train disruption, uh, rail disruption, and so on um, over the Christmas period. Um, and so, that is kind of, yeah, that's the situation we're in at the moment. So, what is so special about the kind of pension issue in France? I mean, internationally, looking at it, the retirement age in France is uh, 62, Yeah, which is quite a lot lower than Absolutely, um, yeah. most places in the world. Yep. And so, this round of attacks on the pension is seen as particularly kind of politically significant as well as something that financially would hit people pretty hard. Yeah, definitely. And so, uh, yeah, it is worth saying, um, and this is something that a lot of, uh, for example, the Anglophone uh, liberal press like the New York Times, Washington Post and so on uh, keep talking about, which is the fact that, well, like the French, they have such a good system. What are they complaining about? Mm. Um, But- it's important, I think, to go back and realise that that pension system, the fact that France, I mean, it's because French workers have actually been quite successful in staving off uh, neoliberal attacks um, over the kind of from, you know, from the 80s onwards, uh, particularly um, there's a big reference that's uh, constantly made to the 1995 strikes um, against the um, you know, pension reform there, uh, strikes in the public sector and so on. And so, the French working class um, has a really good track record um, of being able to defend their own interests. And so, that's why you have such a generous system. That's why you have, you know, it's it's like it's like 14% of GDP or something mm. is what's spent um, on this pension system. But then conversely, on the other side, that's why they, the from the ruling class's perspective, they need to smash this. Um, and Macron, in a way, is kind of the perfect person to do that. Uh, he doesn't come from any kind of political, well, he, he was a minister in the Socialist Party, but he was co-opted. Um, and so, in you know, um, uh, Jacques Rancière, the philosopher, has called him the uh, personification of capital, pure and simple. Mm. Um, and I think that's a really apt way to describe yeah. him. So, I mean, one of the figures I read was that for teachers, because this is like public sector pensions, um, if these reforms go through, it could be a 30% cut in your pension. So, it's it's one of the questions yeah. is around whether you get the your final salary, which, is, which has been the case in Britain as well previously yeah. for public sector workers, or whether you get a kind of averaged out lifetime right. salary, which makes it really, you know, you can see why they think <clears throat> it can sound sort of a, like a reasonable proposition, but yeah. when you actually look at the figures that this would be a massive difference in people's kind of... Uh, absolutely. And I think um, especially, I mean, teachers, 
you read accounts from teachers um, and one of the things that's really mobilizing for um, people working in the education sector is that there are a series of reforms um, that are also slated for education. But also, if you work in public education, like I was reading an account of one teacher who was talking about how she had to buy things for the class. She walk, she, her first teaching job in a public school, she had to buy like a laminator. Mm. She had to buy um, like games for the class, for the kids. She had to buy books even. Um, you know, like this is the, like it, it is still the case and in a lot of public schools, they're heavily under-resourced. And so, and you know, and so there's, there's that, that also frames things as well. And then when you take the um, the pension system, I mean, the it's based on points basically. So for you know, you earn points um, for you know days that you work and so mm-hmm. on. And so if you spend time out of the workforce or if you you know move into something else, if you're a precarious, a more precarious worker, then that's going to severely uh, disadvantage you. Um, but one of the things that the government is saying as a counter to that is they're guaranteeing a kind of a minimum, a monthly minimum, um, and. Uh, perversely, the Prime Minister, Edouard Philippe, is saying that because there's going to be a guarantee of a minimum, this will actually benefit precarious workers and it will especially benefit women. Uh, so, that's been one of the main um, arguments they're pushing that th- actually this reform is great. Uh, it will benefit women massively. Um, but the thing is, the the guaranteed minimum is like a thousand euro a month, which if you've been working all your life, um, mm. this is nothing uh, to live on. Um, so yeah, it'll, and actually the, the system itself will disadvantage women because it'll be based on points, uh, rather than taking your best, it's your best six months or your last six months if you're working in the public sector or if you're in the private sector, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's longer, but yeah. Yeah. We'd be familiar, Liam, in the, Mm. um, higher education sector when people start to try to replace hours or dollar amounts with points. points. Yeah. Yeah. And the other danger that is that the points can start to represent different things. Mm. So, it's like a point system, but what is a point worth? Oh, it's this, you know, incredibly complicated mm. calculation mm. for your workload or whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. And then they change it and then nobody can quite work out what how it works. Yeah. So, yeah. it's much, yeah, it's much more open, I think, to continued attacks and, yeah. and all of that, which I think people recognise. So, the strikes have been pretty incredible, like 90% of of trains stopped, 70% of teachers were on strike, and actually the students and high school students have been um, blockading schools and really supporting it, so it's not about sort of like... uh, older people's issue you know yeah. like it's not just people who are close to becoming on their pensions and they're worried about it selfishly or something it's actually the whole of working class communities and workers and their families and school children students and so on who've been involved in this and rallies in quite rural places as well and strikes yeah absolutely and yeah so the the mobilization of young people um has been a really good factor in this and in in quite a conscious way as well um so it's not just kind of parents and grandparents and saying, you know, we're doing this for our kids or our grandkids. It's people who are in university, people in high school, recognizing um, kind of the future that awaits them. And I do wonder if that has something to do as well with the kind of the mobilizations globally around the climate, which puts the question of what our planet will look like, Mm. you know, in the future has been, that's been brought kind of front and center of politics and, and movements around the world. And so, but this is kind of looking at society and like what kind of society do we expect 
um, as we kind of enter the workforce or as we as we get on. Um, yeah, but then the other thing, I mean, you mentioned the, the rural aspect or the regional aspect, and that has a lot to do with, um, I, I would say, the Yellow Vest movement, um, which has been really decentralized um, over the last year. Um, it has been something that has mobilized people who weren't previously involved in kind of politics or activism. Um, and um, it tracks really well, like the places where you've had some of the um, biggest, kind of proportionally biggest strikes um, or biggest kind of national days of action um, have also been places where you've had a really strong uh, yellow vest movement. There's a, I mean, some of that stuff is such recent history or an ongoing history, you know, like the yellow vest context, really, like the yellow vests and, and as you say, the global rebellions of 2019. I wonder though, too, there's listeners might remember uh, around 2005, 2006, the, the big uh, rebellions against the contract of first employment, um, which like you were just saying with the current round of, uh, of protests has had, you know, was focused, this one was focused specifically on young people because it was a, it's kind of like a work choices for young people, um, you know, removing all their labor rights. And I was just thinking like those people now are 15 years older, you know, they're probably in their thirties. Yeah, true. They're probably again involved in, in these protests against their pension, you know, so it's sort of this, there's something neat about that, that they, you know, their first act of rebellion against these kind of youth employment laws and then 15 years down the track, they're fighting to save their pensions as well. There's a, a generation potentially who have been just schooled in this. Yeah, absolutely. And also they were victorious that time as well, um, which is something that, um, especially over the last kind of the last um, few struggles that the French working class has undertaken have not been so victorious um, at that. So, yeah, you know, the memory of, of winning um, against against the government then in 2006, I think, would definitely, um, yeah, would definitely hold true today. Let's talk a bit more about the um, Yellow Vest, the Gilets Jaunes. And I guess it's been kind of um, a bit of a, they've been slightly controversial on the left, I would say, in terms yeah. of who, who are, what, you know, like what's the social composition of these people? Is there the potentiality that, that some of them are drawn into the far right? You know, the initial protests were about fuel tax, which it becomes a, a question when people are thinking about the environment or whatever for, from a very kind of narrow lens, I guess. So what's your take been on kind of where, mm. how this movement emerged and what they now represent in relation to this current round of struggle? Yeah, I mean, so it was in, I mean, the most immediate thing that it, um, it you know, the first march was in November 2018, so over a year ago, um, and that mobilised not that many people. It was like 300,000 people, I think, across the country. So, relatively, I mean, yeah. Okay, On a French scale. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah calibrated for, for, um, for France. Um, yeah. But it quickly kind of evolved into something that was more than just – it was always more than just the fuel tax. It was about, it was about inequality. Um, it was about – the fact and both political and economic inequality and the way that those two things come together in France. So it's like 12, I think, of the 32 ministers in the Macron kind of, um, yeah, government are millionaires. Like, mm-hmm. so, and Macron has in- introduced over the over his term, introduced tax reform that has meant that uh, French millionaires um, have managed to increase their wealth at twice the rate of their American and Chinese counterparts. There is a massive shift of wealth going to the top of society. But combined with that, there is um, all of these ministers continue to be plagued in uh, scandals around conflict of interest, um, expenses scandals, um, things like that. And so there is a real um, seething, and it's not just with Macron, but Macron, I think, has 
because he's so shameless um, and his contempt for the poor is very, very thinly uh, kind of disguised in anything he says and in his speeches and so on. Um, and so, and also he came, you know, came into power on a platform of wanting to turn France into, in his words, a startup nation. Like this mm. is what this guy represents. And so there's such a discontent. Um, and so I think it's unsurprising as well that the people who were mobilized uh, were people who, like I said before, were not really part of perhaps the organized working class or the traditional kind of poles or institutions mm. of the left. And so, yeah, that um, uh, kind of provoked suspicion from parts of the left and so on, um, and but who were quite slow to respond. And, I mean, perhaps... Perhaps the worst of these was the um, kind of the left trade union, uh, the CGT, who were very slow to lend their support um, to the Yellow Vest movement, if at all. Um, perhaps on a local level in some mm. places they did, but not kind of nationally or anything like that. So, mm. yeah, I think that um, – but I think the thing that you see now is that they well, they, they should have um, and they should have lent that support much earlier because actually the whole year um, of this – Yellow Vest movement that has just consistently attacked the government, it's had its peaks and troughs. Like it, and and definitely um, the numbers declined as the year of 2019 progressed in terms of people who were coming out for weekly mobilizations. But it opened up a space where now, like, for example, one of the things that characterizes these strikes is general assemblies in a lot of the workplaces, mm-hmm. like in the train stations and, you know, local areas, schools, places like that, town halls. And Although general assemblies are a feature of strikes in, you know, in France and so on, I think that, but general assemblies were also something that were happening during the Yellow Vest movement. And so, it's just a much more like you've got the form that's already been set up for how you do protests, how you do activism. And that has been kind of just just mm. kind of merged or I don't know what the word, but yeah, it's bled into this. The, the Yellow yeah. Vestification or yeah, whatever exactly, yeah. you're saying of, of the strike movement in the fact that it can... It, you can't. You don't just stop. The yellow vests yeah. have not just said, "Oh well, the police attacked us. So we shouldn't go back out." I mean, yeah. that's one of the things that seems striking to me at this distance. It is, you know, all of the footage of the protests, even when they're not huge, they're extremely defiant. Yeah. That they will take on the riot police, and that they will come back the next day, yeah. and they will continue to organise and mobilise and all of that, which I think has been more of a feature of this wave of strikes and protests than previous ones. Yeah, totally. And so, like, for example, last year you had, um, there was an attack on rail workers specifically uh, by Macron and it was led, the response um, on the part of the workers was led uh, by the CGT, the the trade union. And their approach was the one which has happened quite a bit, which is um, kind of rolling strikes. So, you have particular strike days over a period of three months and, but in between, it's just business as mm. usual. Whereas the thing that's happened here is, yes, you've got the days of mobilization which are happening. But in between, there's still, yeah, there's the general assemblies, but there's also still disruption. Like the trains aren't actually running um, according to a normal timetable. And um, and so that is, yeah, that mm. is still going on. And that to me resembles much more what happened in 1995 and why 1995 was a success because you didn't just um, have what, what are called like leapfrog strikes where, mm. yeah, you just, it's just the days of action. That's the day you go out. Whereas this is much more, um, it seems much more sustained at this stage. And the level of anger and everything. Yeah. Mm, totally. So, 
So can you say a bit more about the kind of trade union organisations in France and the role they've played? You mentioned the CGT being not particularly fond of the yellow vests when they um, began and they've sort of warmed up to it. Yeah. But there's two major trade union federations, right? Yeah. So there's the CGT, which, um, yeah, has always been associated with kind of the left, Communist Party or with syndicalism. Um, there's various... Uh, kind of yeah, radical left tendencies and so on. Um, but then there's the other one is the CFDT and they're actually they're the, the number one trade union in mm. France at the moment. So they've superseded the CGT and they're much more, they're, they're self-proclaimed kind of reformists. Yeah. Um, and so, for example, in 1995, they played a famously um, terrible role where they actually backed the reform package and, um, and even today... They're sort of doing that now, aren't they? Exactly, yeah. Because they're just saying, oh, let us have a seat at the table to fill in the blanks. Yeah. Um, so, they don't, they don't, on principle, oppose the point system or a universal um, reform... Uh, sorry, um, a universal uh, pension system. The, but they've got some red lines. Um, and one of their red lines is increasing the age of retirement to 64. Mm-hmm. So, on the one hand, it means that because because of the government's intransigence, it's even forcing the CGT, um, sorry, sorry, the CFDT uh, to oppose it and to mobilise their members for the days of action and so on. But on the other hand, because they've identified like this is their red line, mm. well, now there's room to kind of negotiate. And also the government knows or is trying to kind of play the different kind of factions out. Um, and so they're, you know, trying to make rapprochement with the CFDT um, and trying to, yeah, um, trying to seem open to them um, and open yeah. up negotiations. So there's some worrying signs. Yeah. Mm. And you mentioned the CGT, which has historically been, um, you know, associated with the far left and we used to, like the Communist Party, so not so, not so far left. Yeah. Uh, but I wonder who, like, are the Communist Party still a force in the CGT or what is the left, like what are the left organisations that are, that the CGT would be associated with today and what role are they playing? Yeah, I mean... They are still, I mean, n- not formally, no. Like, and I mean, yeah, they're not formally associated um, with CGT or anything like that. Um, but they do, I mean, they're kind of part of the same camp. Um, I mean, it's not just, the. I mean, you've got the Communist Party, but you've also got uh, the France Insoumise, uh, which is the um, party of uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, um, formerly from the left, left front. Um, and they... Kind of, they're kind of in the mix as well. Um, I mean, the thing is with with those. I mean, on the one hand, they do they do what what left union bureaucrats uh, do quite well, actually, which is they are very militant uh, in rhetoric and even in action. They're calling people out, saying we're going to have a renewable strike, strike again in Jan- you know national mobilization in January again. Keep the trains out. No truce for Christmas. Uh, no gifts for Macron and so on. But on the other hand, they too lament that they're not part of the, they're not, they don't have a seat on the negotiating table. And so that's one of the things, um, for example, one of the um, uh, La France saint deputies said on one of the demonstrations is, we're, you know, we've been excluded, we've been left out um, and they feel like they should have a place um, to be able to decide this. And so that is, I think, um, one of the limitations of, of them mm. as well. Well, it's basically a reformist approach, mm, as, yeah. as the Communist Party have had, you know, um, in France historically forever, really. Yeah. 
Day of the Revolution. Let's just say a few things about Macron because it's kind of an interesting. He's he's an interesting figure in terms of the kind of current global political situation, in that he really is the breakthrough of the centre, if you like, in European politics and and internationally, as kind of like if he can succeed with this centrist kind of neoliberal project in France, then that might be kind of the way to go in other places. He's held up as this figure of of kind of technocratic um, consensus politics and whatever, and that was kind of how he was um, elected. And it was quite a surprise, really, when he was elected because yeah. he's not he wasn't running with a particular political party at that point. Yeah. He was running against the old establishment parties and, of course, the um, Front National, the um, far-right party of uh, Marine Le Pen and so on. So he, he got through to that runoff, the way the French presidential elections work is you end up with two candidates and it was Macron versus Marine Le Pen, yeah. the far-right. And so it was kind of like, okay, well, you just have to vote for Macron um, or whatever, but yeah. kind of when you scrape the surface a little bit, the situation was um, more more divided than it seemed um, yeah. in that presidential election back uh, in 2017. Yeah, 2017. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's the thing to say is that voter turnout was really low uh, for that election, and mm. so if you compare, because um, it was it was shocking that uh, Marine Le Pen, um, you know, got in to the second round. Um, I think for a lot of people, but also if you compare that to the first time that a Le Pen uh, got into the second round, uh, which was in 2002 with uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen, uh, so Marine Le Pen's father, you had a massive mobilization, um, not just at the ballot box, but in the preceding weeks uh, before the final vote, you had, you know, hundreds of thousands, um, if not more around the country in, you know, involved in anti-fascist protests and so on. The problem that happened that time, though, is that you had everyone from the establishment left saying, "We just, you just have to go out and make sure that you don't vote uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen in. And in order to do that, you have to vote for the conservative Jacques Chirac. Mm. Um, so, you had people from the Socialist Party, people from the establishment left basically telling people to go vote for the conservative, you know, centre-right candidate uh, to keep uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen out. And that was counterposed to the, the street mobilisations and building up um, that sort of movement. And so you fast forward then to 2017 um, uh, to that presidential runoff and there are n- there's no mobilizations um, or, or barely any really, not in the same way as last time. And voter turnout is lower as well. Like there's no, it's 12 million people didn't vote. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so the fact that Macron won, I mean, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty shaky ground. It's a pretty hollow victory. Uh, in my opinion, he doesn't like we like we've commented. He's not part of some political party, so he doesn't have some real apparatus. Doesn't really have some base. Um, he really is just there to um, he's kind of cash, cashed in on off the fact that people don't want a fascist um, to be their president. Um, but there's no real enthusiasm for the project. Endorsement. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, the the amazing figure from that election was the four million people, four million, yeah. who either spoiled or returned a blank ballot. Yeah. You can imagine, like, people, because you don't have to vote, so mm. they've made the effort to <laughs> to go in, yeah. get their ni- name ticked off, and then cross out both people mm. or draw whatever they want on exactly. the ballot paper. Mm. 
four million people. So yeah. So he's kind of just got in almost um, by default, but people kind of welcome this international, the New York Times or whoever saying, yeah, yeah, oh, this new hero, the young, you know, he's young and he has nice suits or whatever. Absolutely. Um, so he's welcomed in, but actually his job for the ruling class in France is the job that has not been done in their period of neoliberalism, unlike the job that Thatcher did in Britain mm. of absolutely, you know, you have to smash the trade union movement, which she did. She took on the miners and, and did that in a lot of ways. Um, but in France, they've never had that kind of full route of the trade union movement. And Macron, in his shiny suits, is the one yeah. to now try and do this. And so I think that's what makes this situation pretty important for people to be, you know, following. And, and yeah. the outcome is really, really important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, he, he described himself as wanting to be um, like a, a Thatcher for France. Mm. Uh, so he definitely knows what legacy yeah. um, he, he stands in. So what about the future of this then? The other thing um, that's kind of a paradox because people look at France and they it's always the stuff about, this is just the national, this is what French people are like. Oh, they get angry and they go on strike and it's just kind of a French thing. But actually less than 10% of French workers are members of trade unions. Mm. That's quite incredible. Yeah. Um, but 90% are covered by collective bargaining agreements. So there's a strength in not just being a member of a trade union, but actually taking collective action, which is kind of what the French working class have done. But I don't think we can yeah. put that down to some kind of national character. It has to be that there is this tradition of collective struggle totally. through unions, through mass strike action and through victories yeah, that we've seen. Absolutely. And the memory of that persists. Um, so that's important, I think, um, that there's yeah a memory of yeah engaging in collective struggle, whether it's 1995, whether it's 2006, um, and winning. Um, but also there's a mer the memory of historic struggle. So one of the cool things, one of the cool slogans that's now been raised um, at this time is uh, sous le sapin la grève, uh, which is um, means un under the Christmas tree, uh, the strike, um, uh. which if people are familiar, it calls to mind the May 68 slogan when, you know, that was the biggest general strike uh, in human history at that point of 9 million workers out. And the slogan there um, of the students was, under the paving stones, the beach. And so... Can you say that in French, please? Uh, <laughs> sous le pavé, um, la, la plage. Exactly. See, I did juice, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, there's... Yeah, the... I mean, it's a, it's a kind of a funny little slogan, um, but it, it shows that there is... Yeah, the, there's a left consciousness uh, that exists. Um, there's a consciousness of, um, of, yeah, victories that have happened in the past. And, and, and people see that, you know, with each kind of battle that there is you know, it's, it's part of a tradition. Yeah. I mean, um, the other thing, I guess, we don't have time to go into a whole uh, discussion about it, but the fact that there is no really um, well-organized and built revolutionary socialist organization in France at this moment is, we would say, and I think it's true, a weakness of the current round of struggle in terms of where you go from here you know, what are you building? Are you building the trade, you know, the trade union bureaucracies and their strength? Yeah. Are you building the strength of the reformists who want to be deputies mm. in parliament and have their feet under the table and why won't you let me have a say? 
kind of the reformist strategy for change, mm-hmm. or are you building actually revolutionary organisations that can continue to say, well, there's a whole system to change here? Totally, yeah. And I mean, you, you can see it, for example, like we were talking about the CFDT and their kind of reluctance um, to mobilise around this because they actually agree with a whole whole uh, section, a whole part or, or the spirit of the reform package. But actually the workers don't. Um, and so there's... In so many instances, the workers themselves, who are either members of the unions or not, kind of uh, just push past uh, kind of the limits that the, the union set. And they have a much uh, clearer picture, especially with the Yellow Vest movement over the, last, um, uh, over the last year. It's actually really sharpened the kind of hostility to the rich, uh, to, to Macron, uh, to his government and so on, um, and to the whole, uh, you know, really undemocratic nature, which I, don't, I guess don't have to really a lot of time to go into, but of, of French society in general. And so that is like people are quite aware. Um, and so there's a real potential um, if there were some sort of revolutionary organization in France or, or something that was sizable enough to kind of take advantage of this, to kind of push past the leaders. Because even the most left wing ones like the CGT, for them, for example, when um, basically the government was pleading with the workers to give them some space for Christmas mm. so that, you know, these people poor- could see their families. Yeah, mm. So they can enjoy Turkey and so on with their families. <laughs> Um, the response of the union leaders, well, a lot of them was to say, well, we would love to, we yeah. would love to we do that. We don't want to disrupt Christmas. But it's not us, yeah. it's you guys, you know, you're, 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 if you just, you know, don't institute this reform package, then, you know, we'll, we're happy to let people travel. Whereas actually for a lot of people, there is a real urge to stay out on strike um, because it's not just about the reform package. It's about, you know, the whole of French society. Yeah. I mean, that when you describe that sort of potential that's there, you know, for serious ongoing mass rebellion and, and you you know, Ros mentioned that the lack of a revolutionary revolutionary socialist movement is a, is a weakness. It's kind of even more than that, isn't it? So it's actually a travesty because you think about the history of the far left in France, and not even just the ancient history, but the recent history. You know, we're all old enough to remember when the LCR was a thing, yeah, a thing people knew about, a thing people around you know revolutionaries around the world said that's a serious organization and it, it's sizable. And you know, it, it, ten years after it dissolved itself into the NPA, I mean, what have they got to show for that? This moment comes and. Yet again, we're kind of adrift. Yeah, totally. And I mean, yeah, they. Um, I mean, they're there and they're a part of it, you know. And their 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 militants are, you know, um, are a part of the thing, um, and, um, and and so on. Um, but yeah, you're right. Like, they were a much bigger organization before. Um, they had it was like ten ten thousand or more, eleven thousand members or something. And they're, they're nowhere near that number now. And so yeah, um, it's that's a real shame. But hopefully. Hopefully this and hopefully um, kind of, you know, as it, this can lead to kind of more confrontations and so on um, and we can, you know, try to build up those ranks again. Um, so I'm going to wrap up the discussion here and I wanted to end with, um, and thanks Chris for coming on the show, uh, with a quote from the Gilets Jean Manifesto because I think it's very festive actually. <laughs> um, block everything, change everything, unlimited general strike unlimited general dream you're listening to red flag radio dear comrades and friends i hope that this time my voice will reach you and that i will be permitted we are not a party as other parties. 
Our ambition is that not only to have more members, more papers, more money in the treasury, more deputies, all that is necessary, but only as a means. Our aim is the full material and spiritual liberation of the toilers and exploited through the socialist revolution.